It's good to be home. It's good to be back in the pulpit. And once you get out your sermon outline, we are on the 10th commandment today. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Heather Sackett is sitting back there and this is your last Sunday. Jeff has started as campus minister at Cornell, uh, has already started um, there, and uh, you have the big move uh, coming. So we need to remember to pray for Jeff and Heather as they uh, start ministering to students at Cornell. And I'm told they need a lot of ministering too. So you are in our prayers and we will miss you. So it has been a joy to have you for five years, roughly. Good. So, and Anna as well. All right. Very good. Very good. I don't want to miss that. We're at the 10th commandment. We're getting to the end of the summer. There's one more week, and uh, Jed will be back, and he's going to sort of summarize the whole thing for us. Uh, But... Let's turn to Exodus 20. I'm going to read verses 1 and 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it desperately. We need to be reminded of what makes you so great. We need the law. We need to be reminded that your law is for our benefit, to bless us, to give us wisdom, and to lead us to our Redeemer. Thank you that the Ten Commandments point us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. So many years ago, before all of our children had grown up, uh, we decided to do a very traditional family bonding thing. We went camping. We found a nice campground in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It had a beach and pools, and it looked great. So we were going to have this wonderful time, and we drove to the campground. We got all checked in, and we got our campsite, and we pitched our large three-room family-sized tent and our small two-person tent, and everything was going just swell. And then that night, we had a gigantic thunderstorm and the rain pounded down and started coming in the tents and we piled everything on top of the air mattresses so you know they wouldn't float away and our stuff wouldn't get wet and then the thunder and lightning just seemed to be getting closer and closer until finally it struck right between our tents not really but it seemed that way and just lit the tents up and super loud. And uh, the two boys, one of whom is here today, um, that were in the small tent, 
came flying into the big tent, didn't touch the ground, just sort of sailed right into the big tent. And uh, we ended up with all seven of us huddled up in a ball with wet sleeping bags on top of our stuff, on top of our air mattresses, cold and shivering, wet and miserable, scared out of our minds. It was almost like winter. (laughs) So the next morning, we get up, we push the water out of our tent. I mean, literally pushing the water out of the tents. Started wringing the water out of all of our stuff. No one had gotten any sleep. We're trying to build this small campfire with wet wood. Wasn't going very well. And we're left with soggy life cereal for breakfast. Not a lot of happy campers. This is why family camping is considered a bonding experience. (laughs) You know? Amen. Some of you have been there. But then another family checks into the campsite right next to ours. And they had one of those pop-up campers. And it was automated. They parked right next to us, got out of their luxury SUV, and pushed a button. And the camper just opened up all by itself. No poles, no ropes, no stakes. And then they plugged it in. And a small stove came out the side. And they made a hot breakfast with pancakes and sausages (laughs) and hot coffee. And we were just standing there watching them in this pathetic line in our Wet clothes holding bowls of soggy life cereal. And we were the Norman Rockwell picture of coveting. (laughs) I offered to trade a couple of the kids for the campers, but our kids looked so miserable they wouldn't go for it. (laughs) So anyways, I wrote you (laughs) earlier this week. Coveting is simply wanting what someone else has. In our case, we wanted that camper. But God says, there are some things that are not yours to want. And there are some desires, when they go uncontrolled, they end up harming us and they affect our lives negatively. And uh, so I'm going to sort of talk about the negative and the positive, and then we'll get to what all the Bible stuff says. Um, So I'm going to start with uh, when, when these things come into our lives and affect us negatively, they cause resentment about what we don't have. Resentment about what we don't have. James 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are five negative effects of resentment, five negative effects of always wanting more, five negative effects of coveting. Now, there's probably a lot more than five, but there's at least five. And the first one is coveting leads to being tired. That, that may be the most common response I get when I ask people, how you doing? I'm so tired. I've said that. Most of you have said that. 
But coveting leads to being tired. Because in our push uh, to get more, we do too much. We work too hard. We become too committed to the whole material rat race. And we get fatigued. We get tired. I know of one family that has four cars, three jobs, two drivers. And you got to wonder, is four cars really worth it? Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Another version translates that. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Essentially, the Bible's saying it's dumb to wear yourself out just trying to get more. To go through these very quickly, the second negative effect of always wanting more is coveting leads to being trapped. How does covenant traps us? Primarily, it traps us with debt. Ecclesiastes 5.11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Easy to understand, the New Living says, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Coveting destroys budgets. It creates needs out of wants. It's created a culture Uh, in our society of get it now, pay for it later, so much so that the average um, two-income household in America has $113 in debt for every $100 in income. And you can look it up. It's actually called the debt-to-income ratio. And uh, the numbers are actually much worse for single-income households. And that's called deficit spending. And only the government gets away with it. And what that means is, to put it in Loudoun County terms, if you make $118,000 a year, then you probably owe $133,000 in consumer debt, and it doesn't count home mortgages. And you probably feel trapped. Most of us feel trapped by debt. And that's what Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. We're going to go to Timothy 6 and Ecclesiastes 5 a bunch of times. They're very uh, much related. But 1 Timothy 6 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Again, the New Living says they're trapped by foolish and harmful desires. So that's the second negative thing. The third negative Uh, effect of always wanting more is coveting leads us to being tense. We worry about what we don't have. We worry about how we're going to get it. We worry about how we're going to keep it. And the more we focus on something, the more tense we get about it. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. How am I going to protect it? How am I going to save it? How am I going to invest it? How am I going to insure it? How am I going to keep from paying taxes on it? How am I going to keep from losing it? The more you have, the more you worry, the more tense you are. And then if you add those three together, you put being tired with being trapped with being tense, and you get the fourth effect. And that's coveting leads to being troubled, being troubled, doing tease today for whatever reason. People have conflict over money more than any other subject. More conflict in the home, more conflict on the job, more conflict in the church. All over money. And Paul says this is particularly true of false teachers. 
Again, 1 Timothy 6, talking about false teachers, says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Going back to James 4, which we read earlier, it says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? You covet and cannot obtain. When you have what I want, there's going to be conflict. It's going to cause trouble. Scott says, don't covet something that's someone else's. Don't covet someone else's job. Don't covet someone else's car. Don't covet someone else's house. Don't covet someone else's wife. Don't covet someone else's husband. And people don't often say that, but I think people often think that. Oh, I wish I had a husband like that, always sensitive to my feelings. Or if I only had a wife like that, someone who would always do what I want. Those are fantasies. God says, don't go there. Don't covet. It will bring you trouble. Finally, the last one is that coveting leads us to being tempted. We often think tempting leads to coveting, but most of the time it's coveting that leads to temptation. We always want more. We're never satisfied with what we have. We suffer from dissatisfaction. We suffer from discontent. And dissatisfaction and discontent lead us into temptation because more is never enough. You know, somebody famously asked Uh, John D. Rockefeller at the time, one of the richest men in the world, just how much is enough? And he looked at him and said, just a little bit more. Back to Ecclesiastes, we read, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When we're not satisfied, we look elsewhere. It doesn't really matter what the topic is, and those desires lead us into temptation. James 1 teaches us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And again, 1 Timothy 6 reminds us those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. But let's be honest, we're usually not satisfied with what we have, or at least not for very long. How many of you are still satisfied with what you got last Christmas? How many of you can still remember what you got last Christmas? So what do we do? What's the antidote to coveting? How do we overcome resentment about what we don't have? And I think the answer comes in our next passage where Paul talks about learning contentment. Because contentment doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come easy. It must be learned. And that's a provision of grace, contentment with what we do have. Turn to Philippians 4. Here we have the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. He's facing and expecting death. And he has the audacity to say this, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Well, what are the important things that we do have? You stop and think about it. Most of it is not stuff. What do we need to be content with? Well, first we need to learn to be content with family. Content with family. The commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or husband or children. We have to learn to be content with our family. They're the most precious gift that God has given you. Are your kids perfect? I doubt it. It's okay. Neither are their parents. Is your spouse perfect? I don't think so. But that's okay because you're not perfect either. So learn to be content with the family that God has given you, even with all of their problems. Maybe they'll learn to be content with you too. The commandment continues, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant. Most of us don't have servants. We do have people who serve us. We usually call them friends. So we need to learn to be content with friends. These are the people that God's placed into your life. The people who live in your neighborhood, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people sitting next to you right here in church. And people bring us the greatest joys and the greatest frustrations. You ever wonder why Jesus said, love your neighbor, and he said, love your enemy? Because sometimes it's the same people. God has brought these people into your life, and he wants you to be friends with them. He wants you to build relationships with them. He wants you to be content with them. A lot of people spend a lot of their life looking for new and better friends, and it usually doesn't work. And I understand it's hard sometimes to be content with our families and be content with our friends, and that's why it's a learned experience. It's also why this next one is so important. Because we realize if we're going to be content with family and content with friends, we have to be content with forgiveness. With forgiveness. People are a pain in the neck. Sometimes. So are you. Sometimes. So am I. Sometimes. All the more reason to forgive. Because we need their forgiveness just as much as they need our forgiveness. And together we all need God's forgiveness. But thankfully, that's something that God loves to do. He loves to forgive. And he wants us to learn to love being forgiven. You ever think about how amazing it is with all the garbage in your life that God's willing to forgive you? That's pretty amazing. Then we're able to love others, we're able to love our friends, love our families by forgiving them. Most of the time, just for being themselves. So learn to be content with forgiveness. The forgiveness you have, the forgiveness you give. It's one of the best things we've got going for us. But sometimes even forgiveness is hard. It's hard to look past all of the hurt. So how do we do that? And I think the primary and maybe the only way we can do that is By learning to be content with Jesus. It's not an F there, kind of. Just switch that one up to throw you off. Um, Be content with Jesus. Over and over, the scriptures teaches us to get our eyes off ourselves and look to Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of this earth. 
Hebrews 12, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Be content with Jesus. So when we can learn to be content in any and every circumstance, as Paul said, then we'll be able to live at peace with ourselves and with others, overcoming this craving to get all we can. We know what we shouldn't do, covet. And we know what we should do, be content. And all of that is easier said than done. So how do we get there? How do we learn this living at peace with each other? Four ways, very quickly, uh, to learn to be content. Enable us to live at peace with each other. And the first one, and these are sort of simple, but a good reminder for us, resist comparison. Resist comparison. And everybody's subject to this, and pastors are like the worst. You know, I go to a pastor's conference. One of two things. How many people? How much money? So we can sort of see where we fit. It's terrible. You know, I usually say some, make something up, you know. Oh, we just brought 10,000. What? No, ten, you know, it's like 250. You know, go away. Um, <laughs> so, the, uh, you know, I just like the reaction. Total depravity. Um, <laughs> but comparison leads to coveting. And the Bible says, don't do that. Don't compare uh, yourself with others. 2 Corinthians 10 says, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul's saying, what I'm writing you, I'm going to come and tell you face to face. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding means comparing ourselves with others is not only unwise without understanding, it's also unbiblical. It's unwise to compare cars, clothes, houses, kids, spouses, whatever. It's not wise. It creates dissatisfaction. And as I've already said, dissatisfaction leads to uh, temptation. So how do you react when you see someone that has a nice new car? Well, I wish I had that car. Can you just be glad that they have it? We can admire without having to acquire. How do you react when you go to visit someone and they have a a really nice house or beautiful furniture? You know, it's like all Ethan Allen. You know, it's Louis XIV. You know, ours goes back to Sears on the 15th. (laughs) You know... One of the greatest lessons that we can learn and one of the greatest lessons we can teach our children is how to admire without having to acquire. I can enjoy a lot of things without having to own them. If you only enjoy things that you own, 
you're going to be pretty miserable for most of your life because you can't own everything. Even Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, one of the richest men in the world, doesn't own everything. He sells everything, but he doesn't own everything. But simply put, all comparing does is reveal our own insecurities and the fact that we're trying to keep score by possessions. And the Bible says when we do that, we're living without understanding. Second, we live at peace by learning to be grateful. We have to learn to appreciate what we have. Be grateful to God for what he has given you. Once again, back to uh, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of King Solomon. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Notice those words, enjoy, accept, rejoice, gift. God's saying be grateful for what you have. It's okay to enjoy it. It's a gift of God. So we have to be very careful. Our society does this constantly. We have to be very careful not to fall into uh, the trap of when and then thinking. You know, when and then thinking says when I get fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. You know, when I graduate, when I get married, when I have kids, when I have a better job, when I get the new car, when I get my debts paid off, when I get my kids through college, when I can finally retire, then I'll be happy. No, probably not. Because when the newness wears off, then we'll want something else. And we're back into the treadmill of when and then thinking. First Timothy 6, again. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which means like proud and arrogant, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Happiness is not getting whatever you want. Happiness comes much more from enjoying what you already have. So be grateful. Third, be generous. God doesn't bless you for your own benefit. He wants you to share it. The next two verses in Timothy, speaking of those who are rich in this present age, tell us they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the question becomes, can we own a lot of things without becoming materialistic? The answer is yes, but... And the but coming from the precautions we find in these verses in 1 Timothy 6. Don't be proud or arrogant about wealth. Don't trust in money but hope in God. Use your money to do good and be rich in good works. And be generous with your money and willing to share. And the Bible says if you do those things, you'll be laying up treasure in heaven. It's a mark of spiritual maturity. And finally, we live at peace by learning to trust God. This sort of goes back to focusing our eyes, fixing our eyes on what lasts, giving our attention to what's important, to what's permanent, to what's eternal. Because everything you see is eventually going to decay or rust or break or fall apart or blow up. It will eventually not exist. And what remains is the relationship that you have with God and the relationships that you have with people. 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's not enough to have plenty to live on if you have nothing to live for. It's not enough to have plenty to live on if you have nothing to live for. And the worst thing about covening and discontent and dissatisfaction and materialism is they cloud our vision of God. We begin to think life is about stuff. It's about acquisition. But getting more stuff never leads to contentment. It only leads to coveting. And Jesus said, Luke 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You shall not covet. Coveting is this inner grasping. Coveting is not stealing. It's not committing adultery. It's not killing. Those things were covered in earlier commandments. Coveting is that inner grasping of things that says, I have to have these things or I will feel so empty. You shall not covet means you shall love God enough to be content in all circumstances. That's what this commandment is. The first commandment and the tenth commandment are like bookends. They summarize the whole. The first commandment was love God with all your heart. Put nothing before him. Be absorbed with him. Tenth commandment is the result. First commandment is to love God. Second, uh, the tenth commandment is if you love God, if you love God enough, so you'll be content in all circumstances. The rest of the commandments fall in place. If I love God enough to be content in all things, why would I want to steal money? Why would I want to steal sex? Why would I want to steal status? Why would I want to steal revenge? Why would I need those things? Pleasure is nice, created by God. Money, comfort, sexuality, they're created by God. They're nice, they're good, but they're just icing on the cake. They stimulate your taste buds, but they are not food. Can you imagine living on icing? What would happen to you? What would happen if you were living on icing? What would that do to your body? What would that do to your soul? A person who's loving God enough to be content is saying, these things are nice, but they're not crucial. If I love God enough to be content in all things, then the lifestyle of obedience to the Ten Commandments will flow out of that. A life of integrity, the Ninth Commandment. A life of generosity, the Eighth Commandment. A life of purity, the Seventh Commandment. A life of forgiveness, the Sixth Commandment, and so on and so forth. It all just flows out. That's the reason the Apostle Paul was converted by the Tenth Commandment. Paul tells us the story of his conversion in Romans 7. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. It means I felt good about myself. Thought I had it right. I was doing okay. I was godly. Let's read the whole thing. Romans 7, starting about halfway through verse 7. Yet if, I had, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have Uh, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing on an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. Commandment is holy, righteous, and good. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I would not have known what it means to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing on opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He says, sin came alive and I died. The commandment killed me. So I thought I was a godly person until I read this commandment, you shall not covet. And I began to realize what it said. It says a godly person will love God enough so that nothing else is necessary. He'll be content in all circumstances, in plenty and want. And suddenly Paul sort of wakes up and says, I'm not anything like that. He's convicted of sin. And he says, I can't even come near that. I'm not godly at all. Help me. And it's the beginning of his conversion. I don't know where you are this morning. I would hope you would hear this message by realizing you're nowhere near what the Bible commands either. These other things that you have to have, that you covet, that you grasp after, which are never there as much as you want them. They force you to run around in a state of being discontent. This is marvelous quote by the journalist uh, Cynthia Heimel. She writes for the Village Voice. And she was writing about three people who are big celebrities. And I took their names out, but you would know them, uh, all of them. But listen to what she says about them. The minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. When God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you suddenly realize you want to kill yourself. Obviously, she's not a Christian, but this could have been taken right out of Romans 1. The night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, now they were adored, invincible magic. The morning after the night each of them became famous, they wanted to overdose on barbiturates. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think that's awesome. You have secular writers without even realizing it communicating biblical truth. Sometimes the best way that God can bring you to your senses is to give you what you think will satisfy you so you can learn that it doesn't and won't. Because until you understand that you're incapable of contentment on your own, you're actually incapable of contentment. You get that? Until you understand you're incapable of it, you'll never be capable of it. And once again, the 10th commandment, it's really just the first commandment put in psychological terms. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The 10th commandment, you shall be completely content and not covet or grasp for anything. There shouldn't be anything you want so badly it'll make you miserable if you can't have it. There are plenty of things you can want, but they shouldn't make you miserable if you don't get them. You know what? 
That's the first commandment. The only things you want so bad that if you don't get them, you're miserable, are things you put before God. If you have no other gods before God, you will not covet. If you covet, it's because you have put some things before God. It's the same commandment. Psychologically, idols are things that give you self-esteem and identity. Sociologically, their idols are things that give you credibility with other people. Theologically, idols are things that make you feel acceptable in the sight of God. These are the things you say, if I have them and only if I have them will I make it. So whenever you're unhappy, discontent, bitter, miserable, ask yourself, what besides Jesus has taken title to my heart? What besides Jesus has become my salvation, my identity, my joy, my main preoccupation, my loyalty, my delight? That's the question. There's no more profound thing I can tell you about contentment than this. (coughs) What besides... Jesus. You end up having to preach the gospel to yourself. It simply means that you have to say, this is not the thing that gives me value. This is not the thing that gives me righteousness. This is not the thing that makes my life worthwhile. It's what Jesus has done for me. It's what Jesus says about me. You have to see that. You have to recognize that. You have to understand that. And it starts when you come and you say, like the Apostle Paul, I thought I was alive, but this commandment has slain me. I thought I could make it. I thought I could do it. But now I see how far short I really fall. I've been leveled by this commandment. Help me. That's the beginning of the path that led to the place where Paul could say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Love does not envy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Heavenly Father, this tapestry of scriptures is both convicting and consoling. It's convicting because on a daily basis I can be envious of anyone in sight and covetous of anything within reach. I get envious of people who have less hassles and more resources. People who can play harder and need less sleep. People who can eat cake and lose weight. Extroverts who are at home in any setting while I struggle to make eye contact. 
I don't covet my neighbor's ox or donkey, but I want his ability to run without knee pain. I don't covet my neighbor's male or female servant, but I would love to have his golf game and his beach house. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But Lord, as convicting as these verses are, they're even more consoling because through the gospel, I realize all I really need is Jesus. Thus, whatever you choose to give me. If I was given everything I covet, my bones would rot. It would never be enough. Eating gratitude is cancer of the soul. Coveting is heart disease. Selfishness is dignity theft. There is a Jesus-shaped hole in my soul that only he can fill. And thankfully, he has and continues to do so. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see Jesus. So very amen, I pray, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.